Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. Welcome, I'm your host Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today my guest is Jenny McFarland, a nearly lifelong Arizonan that loves exploring different habitats in southeast Arizona. She currently works as a conservation biologist for the Tucson Audubon Society and coordinates the Important Bird Areas Program and other bird survey conservation projects. Jenny organizes several large-scale community science efforts in southeast Arizona each year, including elegant trogan surveys of five Sky Island mountain ranges, western yellow-billed cuckoo surveys, and the Desert Purple Martin Project. When she's not surveying or coordinating, you can find her looking at lesser goldfinches, which she will tell us more about later in the bird segment. It's good to have you on today. Thank you so much. It's really fun to be here. In the intro, the word survey came up quite a bit. It is a large part of how you spend your time professionally. And before we started recording, you mentioned something about an elf owl survey earlier this week. Can you tell us more about what it's like to survey this owl? Yeah, it's a lot of fun, first of all. Elf owls are amazing birds. They're the smallest owl in the world, in the entire world. The smallest owl hmm. lives right here in uh, in the American Southwest. They come up here to nest. They winter in Mexico, so they're a migratory owl. So they arrive in the Tucson area, usually mid-April, early April normally, but this year it was mid-April. So we time our surveys to be uh, in the same evening as the few nights before the full moon. And part of that is because they're quite vocal during that time of the, the moon phase, you know, in the mm -hmm. month. More moonlight means more calling from small owls, uh, typically. But also, this is when they first arrive. So they're very vocal. They're territorial. They're sort of fussing and flirting with each other, figuring out who's in what territory. And it's a lot of fun. When you do community science surveys, you're organizing, I organize quite a lot of people just members of the public, birders, people who are just interested in a bird like the elf owl. And we set up these routes all through um, Saguaro National Park, east and west, which mm -hmm. lies on you know, opposite ends of the Tucson Valley. And people go out and uh, they're assigned a trail and we walk them in the night looking for elf owls. Oh. How many people are usually involved with something like this? This year was incredibly popular. We promoted the, the project, uh, I think, a little bit better this year. And I had mm -hmm. over 50 people involved. And they're amazing little animals. And that's part yeah. of what is such a draw for people is we have special permission to be in the National Park as well as Tucson Mountain Park okay. owned by Pima County after dark. And that is attractive too, a special mm -hmm. access. But also the birds themselves are just so enchanting. Mm -hmm. They're very, very small, about mm -hmm. the size of a sparrow as an owl. And they are have a really cool call. It's a really interesting laughing call that's actually pretty loud for a bird so small. And I do have a, a recording of that call. Yeah, and we'll add that in. Yeah, it's a really cool sound. And it sounds sort of like mysterious laughter in the dark. And that's actually why they're called elf owl. Oh. Sounds like a, an elf laughing in, in, the, in the darkness. When you're out there with all these people gathering data, what kind of data are you gathering about the elf owl? So 
the general public, with a little bit of training and some sort of just really good and clear instructions, can gather really substantial, high-quality data. And what we've done is we have a base of volunteers that have gone through training with the Tucson Audubon Society, but they're also... Just with really clear direction, I can, especially a species-specific survey, like the LFAL survey, you can get people to gather really good data. So what we do is we have a real simple and straightforward protocol where mm-hmm. people start at their trailhead, uh, and then when it gets dark, they start, and they have a little audio file that I've prepared that they play that has LFAL calling and then silence and then more LFAL calling. Mm. So then in those silent minutes between the, the calls, you listen for LFALs to call back, and then on their data sheet, they document you know, where their location was, um, what they heard, how many LFALs they heard, whether or not it sounded like a pair. And that's part of the the training we mm. do beforehand, what that sounds like. And then when they're done, they go 150 meters down the trail and do the whole thing again. <laughs> and after 10 of those stops, uh, we have people sort of go back to their vehicles and then um, call me, check out with me that they're safe and then leave. Sure. So you get you know, 50 people out doing a survey over two nights, you're going to get a lot of data, a lot more data than a, bi- a trained biologist could get themselves going out. Sure. So it's a huge group effort. And we get a lot of really good data that, that we use for conservation and that the National Park is really happy to have as well. Yeah, it seems like it might be quite a lot to sort through afterwards. It is. And this year, for the first time, I had people enter all their own data online, okay. which was great because it, it made it a lot um, faster to get all that data entered. But it also gave the volunteers, the participants, a real ownership over the whole process, which is something I was very interested in doing, them seeing the data entry and analysis part as well. Hmm. I think in some ways this could be considered birding with a very specific focus, uh, but transitioning to when you bird for fun, what is one thing you have to remind yourself of when you're out birding? That's a really good question, and I do bird a lot for fun. It's That's hmm. the thing about birding. When you do it professionally, it's a big part of my job is birding. I find myself doing it a lot on my free time too and my partner is a bird watcher as well so we do mm. it a lot together i have had a lot of really good leadership from people especially when i was younger that i'd go out with birding and one of the main lessons i took from a lot of people was to slow down and that's mm. the main thing i have to remind myself of all the time so i like to sort of run around a little too fast trying to see the next bird. But with birding, you really do have to slow down because the more you slow down, the more birds sort of emerge. If you're running around a piece of habitat too quickly, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. So slow down is the main thing I have to tell myself a lot. I think that is good advice. Since you do so much birding, what do you think it is that you enjoy most about birding? Birding has a lot going on. I think what I enjoy most about birding is the fact you can do it anywhere. So birding is one of those things where when you're traveling, you always want to go see something or do something fun, see something new. And birding really can provide that in the most sort of unexpected places. Birds are pretty much everywhere. So you can do birding pretty much anywhere and everywhere. So I really enjoy that aspect of birding. When did you first take an interest in birding? This is a question that birders talk about a lot when we gather socially, because birding is incredibly social and has a lot of social components to it. Uh, When did you get birding? When did you start birding? And a lot of people refer to it as like sort of a spark bird moment Mm -hmm. is a term Mm -hmm. you hear a lot with bird watchers, like a a bird that hooked you in. And a lot of people have very, I hear a lot of the similar stories a lot from people. And mine was actually quite different. A lot of people get involved with birding with a family member, usually like a parent or a grandparent, gets them into, like, takes them out birding, gets them into it. Mm-hmm. And that was not my experience at all. I had 
no one in my family was outdoorsy or into the outdoors or into wildlife or birds at all. It mm. was books that really got me involved. Oh. I would go into the public school library and check out all the books on animals. I was very interested in animals. So I went through a few phases of reading all the books on butterflies. And then I read all the books on snakes and sharks. And it was when I got to birds that I was really, really interested, really enchanted, and, and just started consuming all the books on birds <laughs> I could find. And when I got a bit older, I discovered there was this thing called bird watching, which I didn't know about at all as a child, that anybody did that. Yeah. And then I, when I got a bit older, I was exposed more to that, and then I got really involved in birding. Hmm. When you think back to taking an interest, you mentioned you took an interest just in reading about them. Uh, what do you think was your first memory of encountering a bird or seeing a bird? I do have this memory. I grew up in, in very urban Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. It was where my, my young childhood was spent. And I remember going into the backyard in densely urban Phoenix, right next to one of the highways going through Phoenix. And there mm. was this amazing duck in the backyard. It was this, I now know it was a mandarin duck, which is an incredibly beautiful little male mandarin duck, okay. absolutely gorgeous bird, full of just amazing colors. And it was just sitting there looking so beautiful and exotic in my backyard. Hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh. And then uh, I saw a cat, like a, one of the neighbors, you know, sure, cats sure. stalking it. And I chased that cat off. And <laughs> then I never saw the duck again, but that had a really big impression on me. Hmm. At that time, did you try to go look up and find more information about ducks? I did, yeah. So I was trying to figure out what that bird was. And I was doing this more and more, trying to figure out what the little birds were in urban Phoenix. A lot of yes. them were house sparrows. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I did try to find that duck and then found out it wasn't from Arizona. So it must have escaped, you know, as a pet or like a, you know, a yard duck from someone's yard. But, yeah. yeah, I did definitely try to find more information about it. Nice. On the topic of new birders, what is a piece of advice you would share with our listeners who may be due to birding? I think birding is such a fun thing. And, and working at a, a you know a local Audubon chapter like the Tucson Audubon Society, this is something I encounter a lot, are new birders, people who are just getting into it. And not pigeonholing yourself, I think, is one of the biggest, most helpful pieces of advice that um, I can give is that birding is whatever you want it to be. Mm -hmm. Don't let people tell you what birding is or how you should do it. If you want to have your bird watching be at the level where you're just looking at birds at your feet or outside your kitchen window, that's great. If you want to be super competitive and try to get more birds than anyone else in a, in a given calendar year, that's also great. So whatever level you want to do birding, whatever brings makes you happy about bird watching is the right way. Don't ever let anyone tell you you're doing birding wrong. That's true. There isn't really a wrong way to bird. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to bird identification, as you mentioned earlier, trying to find out more about that mandarin duck, uh, as a new birder, we see all these different birds, and then we want to know what they are. What resources have you found the most useful for identifying birds? So there's a lot of different book options out there, a lot of different book options. And part of the reason there's so many is because different people like different things. So some are illustrated guides, some are photo guides. But in my opinion, if you're a new birder, you really want to go with a guide that's limited to your regional area. So here in Tucson, I tell people to get the, you know, the Birds of Southeast Arizona book. It's a mm -hmm. small uh, little red book. Um, it's pocket sized and it has 
all the birds pretty much of southeast Arizona in there, which I think is really good for beginning birders because it eliminates those really confusing lookalike species Mm. that don't occur in this region, which when you look at a whole book, you know, a book of all the birds of the West, you'll notice like the Impidinax flycatchers all look very similar and it can get really overwhelming and confusing for new birders if they don't initially understand that a lot of those birds only occur in very specific areas. So even though they look very similar, you're not likely to encounter them together. So that really helps, I think, to get a regional book. But if you're going to be moving beyond that and wanting a book that is for a whole, a whole like half of the country, even a whole continent so that you can you know, travel around and all the birds will be in there, I do prefer the Sibley bird ID books. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people have different preferences. Sibley uses illustrations. So yeah. if you prefer photos, if that works better for you, just, just go with what you like. There's a reason birders have whole shelfuls of <laughs> bird ID books. Yes. Aside from these bird guides that you just mentioned, what is something that you've purchased for less than $100 that has had the largest impact on your birding experience? So this is such an interesting question because uh, so much emphasis is put on buying you know, high ticket items like binoculars and, and scopes and things like that. And I, sure. I thought this was such a good question. So for a low price point item, I was tempted to say something like hiking boots or like hat, but... But I kept going back to these these digital birding apps. Mm-hmm. So these bird ID apps you can get for like a smartphone, they're really very, very good. And they they have all the the strengths of what a smartphone can provide, where they're like a book. And they're they're not that expensive. You can get a really high-end one for between ten to twenty dollars, which is a lot for an app, but not very much for a book, mm-hmm. especially a book that has an audio component. Mm-hmm. So it has like you can get the Sibley uh, ID app for $20. Sometimes it's on sale for like $10. Hmm. And it has all the illustrations that are in his book, but it also has audio files. So you can hit an icon and listen to the calls and songs of birds, which is an amazing resource when you're trying to learn birds or try to figure out what you saw. So I would say those apps, you can even get some bird identification apps for smartphones that are free. So Mm -hmm. the Merlin app from Cornell, Lab of Ornithology, or the National Audubon app, they're very, very good, and they're inexpensive. You can get even nicer ones for not that much money. So I think that has had a huge impact. I use it all the time because those books get kind of heavy to carry in the field. Sure. But you always have your phone, and even when you see a bird when you're not expecting to be birding, you, you have all that information on your phone. So I really think those birding apps are has been sh- such a huge game changer. Hmm. So this is, again, tied to that bird identification. We have the books at home, and then we have this app. Uh, as a new birder, it can be a little overwhelming flipping through the book because I'm not sure – uh, what class of bird I even saw. So when you think of that, how can you kind of ease that transition from what am I looking for when I'm looking at birds and then how do I better identify them when I get to the book? When you see a bird and you're not sure what it is, it's very, especially as a new birder, it's sure. very tempting to just rip out that book or pull out your phone and start looking at the app and like flipping through to try to see something that looks similar to sort of like compare in real time. Mm-hmm. And that's actually not a very good strategy. You want to do and I had to definitely say that mantra to myself starting out. You know, you got to slow down. You have to stop and look at that bird and really look at it. And it's not just the bird. You want to notice the size, the shape, the habitat is incredibly important. Is it sitting in a tree on the ground? You know, in the water? What what's it doing? Hmm. Is incredibly important as well as where it is. Like, is it in the desert, up in the mountains? Where are you? It can be incredibly relevant. And as humans, we're always drawn to color. Mm-hmm. That always the, is the first thing that people will, will walk up to me and try to describe a bird they saw. And they're trying to figure out what it was. But it was a yellow bird. <laughs> it's like, well, how big was it? And they can't remember because they were so 
taken by the color yeah. that they didn't notice the other details. So really trying to notice the size, the shape, the relative size of the bill to the rest of the head. Did it have, you know, stripes of color on its wing, which are called wing bars? Did it have, uh, how long was the tail? These sorts of things really try to absorb that and take that in mm -hmm. before you start flipping through the book. Because the bird's going to fly away. And sometimes yeah. they fly yeah. away pretty quickly. Uh, you look down at the book and you look up and they're gone sort of situation. So you really want to take in as much as you can before you even pull out your smartphone. Hmm. I just wanted to ask real quick about the wing bar. Is that something I've seen some birds have something, for lack of a better word, on their shoulder? Would that be considered a wing bar when they're sitting or perched? That's often known as an epaulette when it's okay. on sort of like the shoulder, like the wing joint where the okay. wing connects with mm -hmm. the... Um, with the body. So like red winged blackbirds have that mm -hmm. with a big patch of red. That's it's yeah. often known as an epaulet. Um, kind of like on a uniform that right at the shoulder. Sure. Uh, Verdans have it too, have a little patch of rufous right on the uh, sort of the right on the shoulder. And yeah. So epaulet as I hear use a lot. I don't know what the official term is, but you know, a wing bar is, is further down the wing. It's usually mm -hmm. where the secondary feathers meet with the primary feathers. Okay. So almost sort of like at the elbow, you could imagine right okay. around there is where there'd be often a stripe, sometimes double stripe, and that can be an important ID for ID clue when you're sure. looking at a bird. Good to know. So now let's move to our bird segment, uh, where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Jenny has chosen the lesser goldfinch. I know that I saw my first lesser goldfinch at a feeder in my backyard, and I was so impressed, as you mentioned others are, by its vibrant color and later its beautiful song. Beyond feeders, where are these birds usually found? This is one of the things I really love about lesser goldfinches is they seem to be like almost indestructible. You find them at so many different places. I have had them at very different elevations. So they do very well in urban Tucson. So that's one thing. They do well in urban habitat as well as wild natural habitat. Mm. See them at, from the very top of Mount Lemmon down to the, the bottom of the Tucson Valley. Mm. So they cross many elevations and many different habitat types. They tend to be in very comparatively lush areas. So here mm. in the in Southeast Arizona, most of it's quite dry here. Like yes. Our land is quite dry, very deserty type habitat. So you tend to see them in areas like closer to the rivers that mm -hmm. we have, like the Santa Cruz River or the San Pedro River, mm -hmm. as well as urban Tucson. So areas of abundance because mm. they are seed eaters, but they also eat a lot of fruit and insects, whatever they can find. So they tend to focus on areas of food abundance. But they do really well in a lot of different habitats. So they're very adaptable birds, which is mm -hmm. one of my favorite things about them too. Hmm. When you find them, are they usually found alone in groups? I have encountered them alone occasionally or in pairs, but they're often in these little groups, which okay. is another very charming thing about them. They kind of roll through your yard in these little, these little uh, sort of, I imagine, little friend groups yeah. of lesser goldfinches. They're very gregarious. They call a lot. They make a lot of noise, but they're very sort of sweet note sounds, really mm -hmm. pretty little sounds. And this is um, a species I actually get asked about quite a lot by the general public. When mm -hmm. they see us, when the Tucson Audubon Society at an event, you know, as sort of the bird people hanging out there at their outreach table. This is a bird that people walk up to me and describe quite a lot. Oh, I saw this little lemon yellow bird. What was it? Because they really are very eye-catching as well as ear-catching. They make a lot of sweet sounds. Yeah. And they're very dynamic. They do a lot of mimicry. They're very, very good mimics. And hmm. sometimes they've fooled me more than once where I'll hear a sound. I thought, oh my gosh, that was a, a Vireo call in my yard. I got to check that out, see if what Vireo it is to add it to my, my yard species list. Sure. And I can't find anything. And then I see a, a goldfinch sitting there. 
And I'm like, that was you. That was you, Lesser Goldfinch. You're very good. Very good mimics. Wow. Since they're so adaptable, they're in all these different environments, uh, where do they usually nest? So they're very interesting nesters. And I, I convinced they nest in my yard every spring in my big front tree, and I can never find their nest. They make mm. these sweet little uh, f- sort of fuzzy-looking nests pulling in plant material. Mm-hmm. And I have encountered their nests every now and then in the wild, usually when they're building them. So they're a little more obvious because there's like a flurry of activity around them. Sure. But the female primarily builds the nest herself with her male guarding her. Mm. So as she collects nesting material and does all the work of flying back and and putting the nest together, he'll sort of supervise and sing above her while she works, guarding mm. her from other males, I assume. Mm. Uh, it's very interesting dynamic to watch with them. They're pretty funny, lesser goldfinches. And he sings quite a lot. So I, that's the only time I've ever really found nests is when they're they're building because he's being mm. quite noisy while she's doing the, the, hard, the, work. the hard work of building <laughs> the nest. But they do really well in urban settings as well as natural. And I've had them nesting in people's yards, in large properties, as well as just in the wild along, you know, rivers and washes. Hmm. I notice usually when they come out to the feeders, uh, one will show up first. They might make a few calls and then the others. And then within five minutes, there'll be half a dozen. Yeah. Is, that, uh, is that behavior common for them where they kind of scout out locations? Yeah, I think so. And this is something, it's hard to know for sure what birds are thinking and sure, why sure. they're doing what they're doing, but it's it's pretty interesting to try to infer what's going on. And this relates to a question I get a lot from people, like people who feed birds in their backyard mm-hmm. is, I put out a feeder and no one's found it, or I put out a feeder and I have birds at it and I'm afraid if I take the feeder down, they won't be able to find food. And mm-hmm. this is all related to the idea that, the, the truism, that birds spend a lot of their time looking for food. I mean, they don't have jobs to go to. This is what they do all day is <laughs> sure. looking for food. And even if they have a pretty reliable food source, like the feeder in your yard, mm-hmm. they still spend a lot of time exploring and looking for new food opportunities. Mm. And I mean, they're very used to the idea that food sources appear and can be yeah. very abundant, like a bush full of fruit, like mm. fruits type thing. And then that food suddenly disappearing. Like all the fruits get eaten and we got to find a new source of food. So this is the the reality that birds are very, very used to and have evolved with. So they spend a lot of their time exploring, looking around, trying to stake out new food sources that are either are about to pop up or have popped up. And they also have a lot of really intelligent attributes to them. Many birds are very, very smart, have good memories, and they can remember where food has appeared in the past. And they sort of check these spots regularly to see if there's food there again. Hmm. So I think they spend a lot of time sort of scattered around looking for food. And when they find something, they somehow do seem to communicate that to other birds rather directly, or maybe other birds just notice that this one's feeding. So there's gotta be food over there. Uh, But yeah, definitely when people notice this, oh, a bird came and then there was more. I think that is literally what's happening. Hmm. And you bring up an interesting point that when a feeder runs out and we worry, it's very similar to the fruit. So birds aren't necessarily surprised by that behavior. They know that food sources can be exhausted and we just have to find another. Yes. I find this this concern from people very um, charming. Like it comes from a place of really caring about these birds sure. that they've come to know in their yard that are feeding, you know, on the food that they provide. But these birds are not dependent on you. And a lot of these are wives' tales, the idea that, you know, birds you know, hummingbirds won't migrate if you leave the feeder up. These things have turned out to not be true. Mm. It's the birds 
will follow their own cues and they're very used to food showing up and disappearing. So in, in nearly every scenario, you're not going to hurt birds. If something happens like you have to move away or, or go on vacation for a month and your feeder runs empty, hmm. that's fine. You're much more likely to harm birds by having feeders that are not well kept. So if mm. your feeder is dirty or, or you know not being cleaned well enough, yes. that's more likely to cause harm to birds than a feeder running empty. Okay, that's a good point to make. Uh, for this last question, I would like to expound upon something we talked about at the beginning of the episode, bird surveys. Uh, for those of us who aren't familiar with surveys, can you tell us a little bit more about why and how they are conducted? So bird surveys is such an interesting thing. And I think people imagine, you know, this is something that, you know, scientists do, almost like in lab coats going out into the wild and collecting data. But it's, it's far more relatable than that. Bird surveys can sometimes be very, very technical where you're out there, you know, measuring the literal distance between your survey location and the, the singing bird over there. Mm. But for the most part, the amount of data that we're interested in can be collected by anyone who has really good bird ID skills and a clear understanding of what the protocol is asking for. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we do are transects with uh, community science where you're having uh, birders go out and help. And it's very similar to regular birding, mm -hmm. but a little more focused. You have to start a very specific place, follow a correct route, and then you're observing all the birds around you that you're seeing and hearing and, and recording that. And that's the main thing is recording your data very carefully. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to write it down. It is science. You have to write it down. Recording your birds as well as recording very accurately what's not there. Because mm. this is always a problem too. Not a problem. This is always an issue with sometimes birders that help with these surveys get a little disappointed that they didn't see the target bird. Mm. But a zero is an incredibly important number in data. And in biological data, it's very, very important. Of species not being present can be incredibly relevant. Mm. And it's also pretty interesting just the fact that you can do this. The fact that community science works really well with bird surveys is because you have this whole base of people walking around recreationally that have an amazingly advanced skill set of mm. bird identification. And you can harness that into bird survey data that's incredibly valuable. There are people out there that are professional surveyors that are not as good at bird identification as some people who do bird watching recreationally. Mm. So that's, this is a chance to harness their amazing skills and acumen and put it into data. And this is exactly what big projects like eBird have done, mm -hmm. where birders can go out and record the birds they saw and where they were birding. And it's all kind of casual, but just the, um, the mountain of data they get makes that an incredibly valuable data source. Hmm. So when you talk about target data, uh, you've mentioned previously gathering certain audio, gathering location data, so the presence or not presence of a bird in a particular area. What's kind of the next step there? Is the survey the main goal then to find out uh, what birds populate specific areas and how many of them? Yeah, that's usually a big goal of surveying is to figure out what's going on. Now, some of the surveys we do at Tucson Audubon are very species specific. Okay. So those elfowl surveys mm -hmm. or the one I have coming up next, the elegant trogon surveys of the southeast Arizona, those big, those big, that big survey effort we do of five mm -hmm. different mountain ranges. Those are all targeting a specific species where we want to gather data on that particular bird. Where are they? Where are they not? How many of them are in these different canyons and locations, different trails in sure. the elfowl's case? But a lot of the surveys we do are also what we call all bird surveys, where it's someone walking a trail or like a specific route, and it has to be repeatable. That's a big thing with surveying, sure. too. That's why you have a set 
start and end that someone can do it over multiple years and then just recording all the species they encounter so then that comes back to like species diversity and sort of the health of an ecosystem okay when we talk about the health of an ecosystem i know that one of your passions is the planting of native plants in urban settings and you mentioned earlier there's a tie between that and these bird surveys Absolutely. So planting native plants is one of the best things that anyone can do to help mitigate sort of habitat loss for birds and wildlife and pollinators. And habitat loss is the number one human caused threat to birds. It's the number one cause number one cause of, of bird mortality caused by people is just mm. straight up habitat loss. And we can all help mitigate that by planting native plants in our yards, on our properties, at our businesses. And that then provides a food base, sort of absolute solid base of any ecosystem is its plants. And that then cultivates native insects, which can be food for many, many birds and many animals. You know, if you want things like lizards in your yard, Mm -hmm. you have to have native plants as well as other resources for them, like rock piles and brush piles. Mm -hmm. And having a lot of lizards in your yard brings greater roadrunners to your yard. Mm. So there's a huge benefit for people too in having all these native plants. One, they're beautiful. They use less water. They're more likely to survive in your in your habitat, you know, in the place mm-hmm. you live if you're using plants that are from that area. Yeah. But they also have this huge helpful impact to a lot of native birds and wildlife and pollinators. Mm. And this does tie into surveys in the sense that one of the biggest surveys I run in the spring is the Tucson bird count, which is this amazing urban spring bird count. It's the largest bird count of its kind in the world and has been sort of um, imitated in several other communities around the world where Mm -hmm. it's a big urban count, which is not what normally happens with bird surveys. Bird surveys usually go out into sort of pristine, wild areas, places like we do the elf house survey, the national parks, places like that. Uh, But Tucson bird count is urban. People are literally standing on street corners taking five-minute point count data Mm. and, you know, along sidewalks and in public parks. And these little pockets of really nice habitat can have surprisingly high species diversity in urban Tucson. But also these sort of barren street corners where there's a strip mall and a parking lot can have very few species, which is very important to document as well, sure. especially when we look back in the data and see that six years ago, before that was a parking lot, there was a lot of species there. Mm. So this definitely helps us, helps guide us on how we can make urban habitat as helpful as possible for native birds and wildlife, which was actually a founding goal of the Tucson bird count. Way back in 2001, it was mm-hmm. founded by Will Turner, who was a graduate student, and his professor, uh, Dr. Mike Rosenswig, who founded the concept of reconciliation ecology, okay. which is a fancy term for everything we've been talking about. What can I do to make urban areas more verdant, you know, more, more useful to native wildlife and still be a very nice space for humans too. You know, how yeah. do I turn human habitat into both human and bird and wildlife habitat? And planting native plants is one of the most helpful and sort of easy things that any of us can do. And that was part of what Tucson Bird Count's aim was too, was to monitor these locations where perhaps they went from natural habitat to really densely urban habitat, almost mm. like a dead zone. And then maybe you start putting in a bunch of native plants and let's see if those bird numbers increase. Hmm. So then because you've taken this data over multiple years in these same exact locations, you can identify that, well, the presence of this plant life or the lack of this plant life has led to possibly, I guess it's hard to tie the exact connection, but 
it's a maybe a correlation. Exactly. That was absolutely the goal of the Tucson Burr Count was to have fixed locations in urban Tucson as well as in the natural areas around Tucson. Some of the count locations are in like Saguaro National Park, which comes mm-hmm. right up to the edge of Tucson yeah. these days. Tucson's grown up to the edge of that park. And it's to really kind of track how it changes over time. So it's a very large data set. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's a 20-year long-running survey now. It has over 900 count locations throughout the Tucson Valley. It's a really large data set. And that's when you can start to do really meaningful analysis is when you have a really large, long-running data set, which sure. we do have. And we are now moving to the phase of trying to do some in-depth analysis. I'm partnering with grad student at University of Arizona and, and some other people are getting involved too. And I've had a lot of requests for access to that data set, which I always sure. gladly share because mm-hmm. the more that people can utilize it and try to tease information and sort of, you know, correlations out of the better. So yeah. I do try to share that data set as much as possible. And we're looking into ourselves sort of trying to compare trends in specific locations, how species changed over time to compare it to how that land changed over time. It's kind of a tricky thing, though, so yeah. we're working on it. Since this is such a long-running project and you're tackling kind of smaller goals each year, what is kind of the current goal, I guess? So you have all this data and you have to start picking through it. What are you picking through right now? So what I'm working on right now is trying to figure out how to assign a value to each of these locations mm-hmm. that the Tucson Burr Account has like established point locations where these five-minute surveys mm-hmm. happen every year and trying to figure out how I can track the vegetation index of that location over mm-hmm. the last 20 years. And so we're looking at satellite imagery and, and NDVI sort of, you know, computer information to try to figure out if we can put a number something that's really comparable to like the number of birds, then sort of a value of the the green index of that area. So we're working Mm. on that right now. It's pretty complicated. So we're bringing in partners to help with that because it's very kind of technical. But that's always been, that's the main sort of scientific component of what we're looking at now. And we've we've been over years looking at things like how species move in general. So like Mm. we know an area has become more urban just based on observation. And so we go to those points and look how they've tracked and cactus wrens is one we've looked at a lot where cactus wrens will be in an area pretty abundantly and then they're there they're there and then we we know that it became like a new development went in like saddlebrook oh. went in type thing like a new yeah. a new housing development and they're there for a while and then another development will come in next to it and then suddenly they're gone so oh. that's the kind of thing we you can that really jumps out at you in the data sure, sure. that we look at and our main focus of the tucson bird count always from the beginning has been outreach really okay. trying to get people involved in doing reconciliation ecology without telling them that's what it's called, but getting people interested in the idea that you can have hummingbirds in your yard. If you put, if you plant some of these native nectar producing plants, if you put a few, you know, chuparosa bushes and an autumn sage in your yard, you will have hummingbirds coming in and then your children can encounter them and experience them right in your yard. So that public outreach component has been there from the very beginning for Tucson Bird Count. And we've really tried to expand that while the count's been at Tucson Audubon since about 2011. Hmm. So it's really as simple as maybe going down to my local nursery and asking, I guess, the demands of that plant, how much space, type of soil, those kind of things, and then find something that fits my yard and then just bringing that over. That's exactly right. And the idea of planting native plants or planting milkweeds for monarch butterflies, like these are becoming very popular right mm-hmm. now. So I think nurseries are getting the message and a lot of nurseries, even the more mainstream nurseries are tending to carry more and more native plants. I wouldn't yeah. suggest looking for true natives at like a big box store. Okay. But if you, there's often 
in many communities, there will be nurseries that focus on providing native plants, sometimes exclusively native plants. And Tucson has several. Yeah. So there's several really good nurseries in, in the Tucson area or southeast Arizona that focus on native plants or plants that are good for wildlife. And, you know, many this is becoming more and more commonplace in many communities. Hmm. And that's a term where if I go to a nursery and I ask them, they're going to be familiar with that. They really should be, yeah. So saying I want native plants or plants that are from this area that'll yeah. do well in my yard is going to really be a good first step. And we have a lot of resources on our website about this. If you if you are in the Tucson or Southeast Arizona area, the Tucson Audubon website has a lot of good information about this as well. We can definitely link to that in the show notes. I'd like to thank Jenny for joining us today, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening to this episode from. You can visit lookingatbirds.com for show notes, a transcript of the episode, and pictures of the lesser goldfinch and some of the other birds mentioned in this episode. Until next time, keep looking at birds.